Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that tells the stories of women with interesting, unusual and inspiring careers. Today's guest on the podcast fulfills all of those criteria and is a woman who has been quietly hammering on the glass ceiling since the 1960s. She is the the developmental psychologist Uta Frith, one of the most respected scientists of the last 50 years. As Emeritus Professor of Cognitive Development at University College London, her work on autism and dyslexia is world-renowned and is grounded in her compassionate, thoughtful approach to her field. The list of Uta's awards and titles are numerous and impressive. Honorary Dame of the British Empire, Fellow of the Royal Society and the British Academy, recipient of the Mind and Brain Prize, the list goes on and on. She has also mentored and nurtured some of the brightest minds in neuropsychology who've gone on to de- to develop their own glittering careers, but she remains a wonderfully modest character who, as you'll hear, emphasises the need for collaboration and diversity to further scientific endeavour. At the start of Uta's career, it was widely held that dyslexia, if it existed at all, was due to lazy parenting or bad teaching, and that people with autism were just a bit unusual. So I started by asking Uta what it was that led her to have a different view of the situation. Um, there are many different factors. So we didn't, we, we've, I was completely puzzled by such things as dyslexia and autism. And that being puzzled drove me, you know, it's it, it that sort of curiosity that just didn't let me go. I, I wanted to know how can we understand it? What is actually going on? And I have to say, I tried many different ideas, both in the case of dyslexia and in the case of autism, and none of them came to anything very good. So there are lots of failed attempts. And in the case of um, dyslexia, um, I was very, very interested in the sort of visual aspects of letters and text. And I had to let go of this. I had to see okay. the sound of speech and forget about actually, you know, the written word for a, a little bit. Think about the sound of speech and how that is processed and how that's connected to the letters, to the visible language. That's what got me further in the case of dyslexia. So I had to really first go into a lot of different areas before that was the thing that seemed to really lead to something much more uh, productive. And in the case of autism, same thing. I tried many different ideas and many colleagues tried different ideas. I listened to them. And there was this one idea that came up, which was, you know, at that time called theory of mind, which did seem absolutely worth trying. You know, it was just like, hey, that sounds really good. But in a way that I had also sort of other ideas that sound really good. Let's try it. (laughs) And, um, you know, unless you do that many, many times, you will never find anything. So it would be a complete um myth to say well here i was i thought of this idea and it worked well you know a hundred things have to be (laughs) first so when you so you were born in germany during the war and um your father was an artist and you maybe as a sign of things to come you persuaded your parents to let you go to the boys school when you were growing up which i think is brilliant um how did that go when you got there because obviously that was not usual at the time no and and it still surprises me and i i'm still in touch with um girlfriends from my primary school in fact And I, you know, meet them just sort of like, you know, maybe once every three years or something like that in Germany. And I 
say to them, what, why did I do that? Why did you not do that? And, you know, the, and, and they can't explain it either. It was really um, an idea that I, I realized that there, that the school where the boys went to, you know, girls could go to some date, you know, a very small proportion, um, did something much more interesting than the others. I mean, to me, it was interesting to learn Latin and Greek. And I loved the idea that I would do lots of math and all sorts of, you know, really demanding, challenging things. I've wanted to do that. And it almost seemed to me, I, you know, the, the, at the school I went to first, and they started with a bit of Latin, and I, I did it very, very easily. It was just no problem at all. And I said, well, I want to do more. And that more wasn't offered there, but I could get it at the other school. And it was indeed a, a pleasure to, um, to be taught in these mm in these subjects and you went off to university to study history of arts initially and how did you come into psychology it's a little circuitous route yes indeed yes indeed it was not an an obvious choice for me at all I had never really heard about psychology as a subject that you could seriously study um so I, I really slid into it rather um by by chance, by good fortune, I could say. But I wasn't too happy about history of art, I think. It seemed to me a little bit too narrow. And um, also, <clears throat> everything seemed to have been done already. In psychology, the opposite was the case. Nothing had been done. Yeah. It seemed such a new subject. And you could just go about and say, oh, this would be really, really interesting to study. So, I mean, I was really inspired by um cases, psychiatric patients, um, that really um, absolutely propelled me into this subject. Because psychology is really relatively quite a new science compared to the others. The rate of pace of research is very strong. But at the time when you were starting your career, it was still relatively young and reasonably unheard of, would you say? Um, Psychology um, was... On stillies, I think a slightly odd subject with sort of very fuzzy, soft edges where people just think it's sort of like, you know, think analyzing other people, psychoanalyzing other people, um, and maybe um, really misunderstanding what psychologists um, do when they study it as a science. And it's really um, something that I, I didn't know, but I enjoyed the idea that you could start with something like memory and you could have a proper experiment and you compare a particular condition and see if memory was better then or at, at another condition. And you could suddenly um, find that, um, for example, I was absolutely bowled over by this finding that if you tell people individual words to remember, you know, just mm-hmm. read a list of words. Um, <clears> there <throat> could be a list of numbers or whatever it is. They could, you know, remember a certain amount. But you, if, you, if you gave people the words made into sentences, they could remember many, many more words. Oh, okay. So that really um, was, was um, astounding to me. I said, well, this is absolutely marvellous because – there's something that happens to pack 
these words together, which, you know, into sort of small parcels or chunks, which um, allows you to remember much more than if you mm. just one little random bit at a time. So wonderful. Your enthusiasm for the subject and your curiosity about science is obviously very, very evident. Um, you were one of the main or the first people really to to listen to people who with autism and their families. Um, how do you feel that that has affected the way you viewed your subjects and your work as you've gone on? Well, it always seemed to me that you you just got to observe and immerse yourself in the subject. And I felt, you know, it was fun to do these experiments. Not fun, I shouldn't say fun. It was a, a real strict discipline to do that. You know, you mm. had to get the attention of the child. You had to set up everything so that you could measure what you wanted to measure. But I found that when I was actually in the schools, whether this was in the schools of ordinary children, you know, or in these special schools that I went to, I learned much more when I was just in the classroom, just watching, and when I was in the playground, just observing. And I thought, well, this is really, really what I what I need to do a lot of. And of course, the real experts in this are the teachers and the parents. They do this 24 hours a day, mm-hmm. some parents. So they can really tell me what they what they feel, what they think is going on. But that's of course not the same as doing science. That's just like the data that you need to begin with. So I think it's been absolutely crucial to get this. And I have to say, I'm always a little bit surprised when scientists um, think they can just get data and don't actually know how they're collected. And they don't actually even know the people that it comes from. And they Mm. don't know their parents. They don't know their teachers. They don't know the culture that has been collected in so I'm a little bit um I'm I'm tending to be quite critical and I should actually tell people sometimes very eminent people I say well you don't really know <laughs> where your data comes from when you just take it because you know it's poured into you from all the computers and so on you might not get very far yeah. And you're well known in your field to have been a fabulous mentor to some of your PhD students who in themselves have become very eminent, well-known scientists. Well, um, just very, very lucky. I'm very, very fortunate with these students. And so, how about you? Did you have people who mentored and encouraged you early in your career or were big influences on, on you in science? Of course, of course. Um, I think most of all, my husband, I have to say, he's really uh, been the the most uh, influence I, I you know just over all the, these years we've been married for more than 50 years now wow. and um I really credit him with um mentoring me uh, certainly to uh, uh, to begin with but of course there's also a mutual interaction that um we can discuss things um so that perhaps he will say that I mentioned him as possible um but um, I would credit uh, my supervisors and other colleagues and indeed students who mentored me. Well, well that's, that is really lovely, isn't it? To know that it goes both ways and yeah. that you feel that yeah. you've imparted knowledge but gained knowledge as well I from those people. Men- what mentoring should be like. 
Um, you know obviously one of your big things is about women in science and um, that is something that now you're retired from um, your academic career that you've been focusing more and more on um, supporting women and mentoring other women and helping to encourage women into science Um, we have these dreadful discrepancies between uh, the number of women who take a PhD and then further their academic career absolutely Um, and you know even at A level the number of girls taking academic science subjects is significantly lower than boys um do you feel that that has um changed a lot during your career or what do you think would had, would have been the major kind of factor that has made yeah. the small improvements that we've made so far yeah well I have to say that there have been big changes you know from when I went to this boys school I really was an mm. exception um, when I um, went to university, I think, again, the, there weren't a majority of women, as there are now. And in psychology, certainly not. Um, but now, when you look at psychology departments, um, there is the vast majority, actually, are women who, who study this subject. So there has been enormous change for me. But I've sort of noticed that um, the life sciences is really sort of an area which is, um, I think, in danger of being sort of seen as associated with women. You know, women mm. are, you know, suitable. And, and, and young girls I talk to uh, say, yeah, that's, they like biology, you know, they like, that kind of thing, uh, nature, uh, people, and um, it, it is almost as if they feel that the hard sciences, physics and maths and all these things, perhaps are not so um, becoming to a woman. I think that is really a big problem. Mm. I think that is uh, where I have not seen as much change as I would like to. In fact, there's almost been a reversal, which is very, very sad. This is true in the case of computer science, Mm. where there were many women in the 1970s, 80s. And now it's very much dominated by men. And another subject um, that is was very, very much um, taken up by women in Eastern Europe, engineering, mm-hmm. physics. Uh, so many women did this in the, um, you know, the old um, Soviet area. Yeah. And their daughters now, it seems, don't do that anymore. So I think that is a very strange regression and I I don't really know how we explain that I don't know whether people have really properly begun to study it no and you um founded science and shopping um a women's network which I think has developed on significantly from where it was at the beginning can you just talk a little bit about that as well well at the beginning it was really thinking that you needed to have um some kind of grassroots movement um and I still think that this is the 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 best thing not waiting for some uh, you know, institution, organization to do something for women, but rather women do things for themselves. So science and shopping was sort of very much, you know, saying we, we must have fun. It's not just all, you know, hard work. And um, the main rule was no moaning of any kind. Okay. It's so <laughs> easy to do that and say, oh, you know, I have such a hard life and I have to do two jobs, I have to be superwoman, all of that. We said, none, 
none of it. It's up to you that you also have some time to do some shopping. Now, I have to say that actually most women just don't do that you know, <laughs> once in these high-flying careers. So it was really, really a little bit of fun, a little joke and so on. And um, we have really from there created UCL women, just because UCL is huge and big and that I knew lots of women uh, who all said, yeah, let's just get together and occasionally, um, you know, just hear about other people and not about only about ourselves, our problems. But sometimes, you know, we discuss indeed um, interesting issues that, that are of, of, of much general interest. But mostly what we do, we like to hear about um, the interesting lives that, that all of us have. So we have this um, series of talks, which is, you know, who am I? Um, okay. How did I get there? <laughs> doing, and it's just, it's just absolutely amazing. But um, nevertheless, I have to say that even it is such fun, and everybody really wants to do this. Um, there are so many pressures on mm. women at UCL that they they never have time. Even lunchtime is filled up with mm -hmm. meetings. So that's mm -hmm. really very sad. Um, I, I do think that um, there is not, women don't give enough priority to um, that little bit of, of extra frivolous um, time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not too frivolous, in fact. <laughs> um, but it is something that I suppose many, many women would feel, oh, there are other priorities and they must you know, and you know, must you know see a student or do something that that just cannot be postponed. So I think that is a problem with these networks. You just can't, um, you know, have sort of a a kind of. I, I really wanted to create an old, an old girls network too. Of course, what yeah. It's the old boys network. <laughs> I think the old boys seem to allow themselves a little more time and fun, yeah. and have sort of extra. Um, um, time that is just not scheduled for entirely work. Yeah, and the the work of the Athena Forum um, is attempting to improve the the lot of women in science. You're a fellow of the Royal Society, and they are also doing attempting positive work to kind of encourage yeah. women in science. What do you yeah. think about um, things like quotas and positive discrimination for advancing women? How do you feel about that? That's a, that's a very, very difficult topic because most women, uh, including myself, um, would feel rather sort of demeaned if they knew they were only selected, given a prize or being recognised as fellows. Just because they Indeed. were women, that just doesn't work. That is absolutely grating. I just, mm. you know, uh, that that's what positive discrimination would look like. Um, there are women who are not quite so um, strict about mm -hmm. this. I know, <laughs> but we are we are trying to um, to really think much more again about you know the the positive sides of just promoting yourself a little bit more not being constantly so modest and saying well I'm doing such good work surely other people will recognize this no you have to actually advertise you actually have to do a lot of self-promotion but in a in a good way in a nice way because you know being seen as the kind of person who is hugely self-promoting 
is obviously very counterproductive. We shouldn't do that. But I'm trying to encourage women who have something to say to say mm. it and to actually, you know, stand by it, not always saying my colleagues and me, but I did, mm. you know, I said mm. and so on. It's quite difficult. Um, but I think that that would be a way of just being more visible, more noticed. And we have some very, very good initiatives. For example, the idea that you should really look at your list of speakers and you should try and get a gender balance. You should look at the, the grants you give to people and you should really be quite sure that you look at the letters of reference which are written for the female candidates and for the male candidates and just see whether it's in the case of female gun candidates there is this famous unconscious mm. bias looking like saying uh, things like uh, you know she's uh, been very hard working and always dutiful well, in the case of the men they say he's uh, hugely successful and you know has uh, taken risks and so on um, which is you know possible uh, to find in in the usual letters of reference so if you are becoming aware of this i think it is much easier to do something which is not positive discrimination but is actually in favor of women just to just to see them just to search somehow just to look for them mm. and you yourself have um you've got two boys yourself and you've obviously made a successful return to a highly glittering academic career following um motherhood you um have said you had a nanny and you wanted to get straight back to work do you think that um things are improving for women in academia to allow them to yes. stage a return to work after motherhood well, I think the best news there, and that, that has been a wonderful change, is that men are much more responsible now and they actually do at least discuss the idea of uh, paternity leave, shared parental yeah. leave. I think it's being taken up by some. I'm glad to say by my son. Oh, good. Excellent. <laughs> He's been well taught. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Um so I think that that will make a big difference, yeah. that it's not just seen as, you know, the the load should get to go to the woman, she should take time out and uh, her career will be set back and, you know, people will assume that if it's a woman who has the child, they have to, you know, stop work and the man could just carry on as usual. So that, that was the old idea and I think that is actually changing but you know it's still it's still uphill it's still quite a long way to go I was just going to say you've collaborated with your husband previously with some work and the two of you clearly have a fantastic professional relationship as well as that within your marriage um that must have been a rewarding and interesting experience and I think that was incredibly fortunate um and I I know there are quite a lot of examples of um, people collaborating together. You don't have to be married, but mm -hmm. there are really um, amazing teams, quite often of two people, but it could also be a few more, who um, have a way of working together. I think there is something very positive about collaboration. Mm. And I'm also very impressed by the fact that Working in groups benefits very much from having 
diverse members, so male and female mixed, mm -hmm. for example, um, <clears throat> young and old, uh, skills in one subject and a completely different one, um, interests that are very different, countries from very different origin, class, culture. Mm -hmm. So I think this really helps in... Um, asking each other, criticizing each other, arguing with each other. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you are just yourself or if you are working with somebody who is only a kind of yay sayer and says, yeah, yeah, wonderful song, you don't want that at all. You want to have um, a relationship which actually, you know, criticizes your ideas mm. all the time and where you can examine them from different viewpoints. If you only have your own thing, you are very likely to end up in a, in a blind alley. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just, you know, because you, you don't know the other perspectives. You don't know what other things are out there. So if you do work with others, and it doesn't just have to be one other, I want to stress that. Yes. It's probably better if it's more than one. <laughs> but um, you know, it's it, it, you know, you have to to um to really I suppose you have to trust each other. It's very important. Um we are in a competitive environment, but of course groups that are competitive with other groups, mm. um, you know, often in a in a winning position, but Within a group, they don't need to be competitive. No, no. But it leads to healthy, healthy uh, advances in science that yeah. way, doesn't it? You yeah. Know? yeah. Um, I was just going to finish by saying you've obviously seen a lot of um, changes and huge developments in neuroscience um, and psychology during your career. What's the one thing that you think has revolutionized your field the most during your career so far? <laughs> <laughs> computers, computers, I would say computers, that has been the biggest, biggest change. I mean, I'm slightly tempted to say the, the ability to um, image the uh, living brain. Yes, that has been an absolute revolution, but it wouldn't have been possible without the computers. So the computers, the whole idea that we can, you know, um, uh, really process a lot of information. All the computers have given us a, a metaphor of what the brain is doing. Um, that is, you know, it's all to do with information that's being processed in the one brain and between different brains. Such an interesting metaphor to end with. It seemed to me from talking to Uta that there has been a great deal of creativity underpinning the rigorous scientific endeavour that has hallmarked her career. The way she's gone about formulating theories, testing them and publishing her research has undoubtedly produced science of the highest calibre. But there's a humanity about Uta that lends her work an added dimension. And this is reflected in her generosity of spirit and determination to see other women succeed in their fields too. The latest figures on women in science make for fairly sobering reading. While the numbers of female undergraduate students are broadly pretty good in the biological sciences, there is a substantial disconnect between the numbers of women attaining a, a degree in STEM subjects and those occupying senior positions, such as professorships in academia. There is still work to be done, so if you're involved in science, check out networks in your academic institution or company to meet, uh, to meet other like-minded women, and always keep supporting other women in your field. As Uta said, it's about collaboration, not competition. That's all for this time and thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Mella. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave us a nice review on your favourite podcast site as it helps others to find us. 
More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word, as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing the Ceiling, and we'll see you next time.